Tune your ear to wisdom. Cry aloud for understanding. If you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Welcome to Project Philippians, a deep dive into one of the richest treasure mines in Scripture. I'm delighted to have you join me today for another excavation into an amazing 2,000-year-old book. Hey, hey, right on. Great to have you back. So if you've been following with me along this trail, this Project Philippians from the beginning, uh, you know that uh, recently we've taken a pretty significant detour. We've kind of left uh, Philippians uh, far behind and Philippi and all the Philippian church. Uh, we've kind of forgotten about them for a while. And we've been on this rabbit trail uh, following Paul along his missionary journeys. And uh, you might be wondering why we're doing this. Um, I wanted to take this time because I really believe that to really understand Philippians and what it meant, we need to understand the man that God used to write that book. We need to have a a better picture in our minds of who, who this guy was. You know, I think it's so often true that the Bible characters take on these mythical proportions, these heroic superheroes of the faith, uh, or they just get lost in history, the, the flannel graph stories and fables of our youth. But we forget that these guys were real people, just dudes who uh, were trying to serve God the best they could with all of their flaws and foibles, and they were just doing their best, and God used them. And so I'm, I don't know about you, but I'm just having a great time getting to know Paul a little better than I ever have known him before. And I've just really been enjoying uh, walking through these uh, chapters in, in the end of the book of Acts to, to understand uh, what his most recent history was right before he wrote the book of Philippians. So that's where we're going. And uh, so uh, with, without any further ado, let's uh, ask the Lord to guide us once again today. Heavenly Father, I am so grateful that you chose Paul to teach us more about you. And now, Lord, I'm asking humbly and um, with trembling that you would use me to teach my listener more about you as well. And uh, that's a daunting task and one that I'm not worthy of by any means. But I am grateful, grateful for the privilege and the opportunity. And I ask, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would teach us and that we would hear from you and see more about who you are, because that is our life. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. All right, so we're in the book of Acts. Now, one of the things I've noticed in this book, uh, this time as I've been studying it, that I never really noticed before, is that Luke has, uh, his typical way of recounting history is to uh, to summarize things. So he'll he'll take us through multiple years worth of history and he'll summarize it in just a few verses. That's kind of a uh, tendency throughout much of the book. But then here at the end of the book, in these last chapters, he slows way down. So he's been speeding through the stories, but now he's slowing down to observe all these intricate details. So just between the chapters 21 and 24, uh, those all all those chapters recount basically just a few days worth of events. And the question that comes to my mind is why is it why is he slowing down like this? 
He did something similar in the book of Luke, where he told the story of Jesus. The first three years of his ministry kind of uh, summarized it uh, over a few chapters and then spends almost half of his book uh, on just the last week of Christ. Now, it makes sense in the case of of Jesus that he would slow down and and focus on that last week of his ministry. Uh, But why did he do that here? It's not as obvious to me why he wanted to do that here in Acts as well. But I really have come to greatly appreciate this because I'm now feel like I'm actually, you know, riding alongside with Paul in these on these last few uh, journeys. And um, I'm just feeling like I'm getting to know him better than I ever have before. So in our last episode, we left him off yeah, still in the prison barracks. He had just completed his uh, tumultuous trial in front of the Jewish Supreme Court, followed the next night by this uh, amazing encounter with the Lord Jesus standing there in his prison cell talking to him. And uh, we're about to follow on. He's going to realize that his adventures have only just begun, and uh, he's going to have some amazing encounters down the road. But before we leave this scene, I want to take you back to that prison trial one last time, because there's one more thing that we kind of brushed over that I wanted to focus in on again, and it was the comment that he made right at the climactic scene of, of that trial. Uh, You'll recall that uh, he knew that the Pharisees and Sadducees had um, uh, some disagreements, theological disagreements. And so he used that for his advantage. He realized he wasn't going to get a fair trial in front of uh, this corrupt high priest. And so he just disrupts the whole court by shouting out something that he knew was going to be theologically provocative and, and controversial. But as I was studying it, I realized I'm not so sure that that was his only reason. I don't think he was just trying to be disruptive when he calls out these words. In fact, I really believe that these words represented the genuine heart of Paul's entire ministry. Let's read them again. It was back in in chapter 23, verse 6. He says, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. So I've I've got credentials here, okay? You can trust me. (laughs) I know what I'm talking about. And I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. Of course, he's speaking about the resurrection of the Messiah. That's why he's on trial, because he believes that Jesus, the Messiah, is not dead, even though he was crucified. He has a hope that is grounded in the resurrection. And he shouts this out. I picture him shouting it out at the top of his lungs, knowing how provocative and disruptive those words would be. But yet, I think he also wanted to come back to the basics, that this is the reality of his life and nothing else matters except the resurrection. You know, I believe it was only just a few months earlier in his life that he had completed writing the books of First and Second Corinthians, the letters to that church of Corinth. And he makes the same point to them in First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. And in verse 17, he goes on and says, If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. To Paul, if the resurrection actually happened, then that should change everything in our lives. 
And if the resurrection did happen, then none of the rest of this makes any has any value whatsoever. Uh, it's, I'm reminded of a years ago when I was a, a teenager at a community college. I was a part of a college ministry, a campus ministry called InterVarsity, and uh, Larry Thiel was our our leader, and he he taught us and trained us in how to to witness uh, to to strangers or just to other people on campus and uh, friends on campus. and And one of the things that I remember so clearly uh, that I learned from him was that apologetics isn't just about trying to figure out how to prove, uh, you know, the the details and and uh, come up with all the different uh, answers to the possible questions that people might ask. I I had actually studied apologetics and. I I was fairly well adept at kind of going through those kind of questions. But but Larry taught me something else because I wasn't very effective in my evangelism. And so sometimes I would follow him around and listen to him as he spoke to students on campus, non-Christians. And I was struck by the fact that he always came back to this one point. He would he would not let the the, the non Christians deflect him off on tangential you know tertiary issues. He always brought him back brought them back to the resurrection of Christ, the cross and the resurrection. And he would tell them if the resurrection happened, then that changes everything. But if the resurrection didn't happen, then none of this is worth talking about it whatsoever. It's it's all futile. It was the resurrection of Christ that is the central moment of history. And if it was a fake, a fraud, a phony, then we are all wasting our time. But if it happened, then our lives should absolutely be revolutionized by that fact. And that's how Paul lived. That was the man he was. So when he stood up in that court, all he had to do was speak from his heart. And he said, the resurrection is why I am here. And yes, it disrupted the court. But that was just his true life. That's how I want to live. Guys, when when you live with the resurrection at the center of your life, if, if that is a true reality of your life, then it will shape the way you live, the decisions you make, the conversations you have. Everything else shall come from that. And so we need to keep coming back to that center, to the resurrection. But having said that, keep in mind that even though Paul was clearly focused on the true central target of life, it doesn't mean that his life was easy. In fact, we're going to see the serious disruptions that came into his life uh, starting in this next verse. So let's pick it up in verse 12. Remember, Paul is still in the prison barracks, but the Jews are still livid and uh, out for blood. So in verse 12, it says, The next morning the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. And they went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. So you and the Sanhedrin asked the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. And we are ready to kill him before he gets here. Oh boy, what a plot. Now, what, one of the things I really love about Luke's storytelling is how he puts these verses together. He juxtaposition verse 11 and 12 side by side. In my Bible, they've kind of divided it with a little paragraph marker and a, and a header, but that wasn't the original. You have to read verse 11 and 12 side by side. The last night, the Lord stood near Paul, verse 11, and said, Take courage as you spoke about me in Jerusalem, so you also must testify in Rome. And just an exhilarating 
verse, and then the very next verse, it says, the next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy. Wow. Here Paul is just thrilled that Jesus has confirmed with prophetic reality that he will be going to Rome to preach the gospel there. But the next morning, everything explodes all over again. Can you picture this? Have you ever been there? Have you ever had a prophetic word or a glorious promise from the Lord Jesus only to be followed by some major setback? Well, obviously in this case, Jesus is a man of his word, and so the story is not over. So we pick it up in verse 16. When the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Now that's actually... Interesting that uh, Paul has a sister in Jerusalem who has a son. He's got a nephew. Uh, we've, we actually don't know anything about, else about Paul's family. This is the only time that Paul's uh, relatives are mentioned in the Bible. Uh, we don't know much about them. And uh, as a matter of fact, some uh, scholars believe that, that when Paul wrote in Philippians that I have lost all things for Christ, that perhaps uh, one of the things he lost was his Jewish family, his uh, Pharisee dad and, and Jewish family that uh, rejected his faith. Uh, we don't know that for sure. It's just speculation. But uh, clearly he at least has one little nephew who is still caring for Uncle Paul. And so the um, so Jesus allows this nephew to overhear this plot and brings it to Paul and uh Paul calls one of the centurions and says, uh, take this man to the, to the commander. Now, again, if I'm Paul in this situation, I'm thinking, whoa, 40 armed assassins ready to come after my life. I mean, I, I would be shaking a little bit. I'd be trembling a little bit. I'd be like, okay, Lord, did I hear you right last night? Because uh, I thought you said we're going to Rome, and now 40 assassins wanting to kill me. But of course, God's got the plan all in mind. And so we'll skip through this kind of quickly. Uh, the boy goes to the com- uh, centurion. The centurion takes him to the commander. The commander takes him aside. The boy tells him the story. The commander believes his story. Apparently, the boy was, you know, carried an air of authenticity and trustworthiness. Plus, he had inside information about intercommunications between the Sanhedrin and the commander uh, that really corroborated the story. And so the commander believes him. And what does he do? Well, first of all, he warns the kid, uh, don't tell anyone else that you've reported this to me. It's not only for the sake of Paul, but for the sake of the boy. He clearly risked his life to bring this information. But then, right away, verse 23, the commander calls two of his centurions and orders them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at 9 o'clock tonight, provide mounts, which is horses, for Paul, so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. (laughs) I just, I'm stunned by the beauty of how God responds to Paul's situation. And here, here I'm imagining Paul just kind of fretting in his cell about these 40 assassins saying, Lord, you know about this, right? And God's saying, 40 assassins? Are you kidding me? That's nothing. I've got 200 Roman soldiers and and 70 mounted cavalry ready to escort you on to your next assignment. I've got this, Paul. It's just so hilarious that God has this incredible answer to every problem. And he's already had it planned out from the very beginning. You see, when Jesus said to Paul, you are going to go to Rome and 
I'm going to escort you there. Paul had no idea what this journey is going to look like. And actually, for the next several chapters, we're going to be looking at this journey, this extraordinary journey to Rome. And Jesus is behind it all the way. And uh, this is just yet another example of God's amazing sovereign power, that he uses a Roman kiliarch and two centurions. They, he, two centurions. He only had maybe six centurions in all of Judea. So, so he is devoting up to a third of his forces to get Paul to Caesarea quickly and safely, about 70 miles away. It's usually a two-day journey. Uh, they do it all overnight, essentially, and then a little bit the next day. And Paul gets to ride in style on a Roman horse. You know, in fact, think about this. When God said, I'm going to take you to Rome, Paul might have been thinking, oh boy, 2,500 miles. Now, he wasn't thinking that because he's already had planned on it. But, you know, it's 2,500 miles from Jerusalem to Rome. That's a distance between Seattle and New York almost. And uh, Paul has already done a trip of nearly equal size, mostly on foot. But for this trip, for this trip to Rome, Paul's going to go the entire way, either on horseback or on one of the uh, finest seagoing vessels uh, that Rome owns. And he is going to be going in style. Jesus has it all planned out. I just love this. Well, we're just about out of time, but I wanted to point out just a couple other really, uh, I found them interesting uh, historical details in the rest of this chapter. So look, when the commander sends Paul uh, to Caesarea, he uh, just chooses to send a letter of introduction along with him. This is a typical thing. This is actually what Paul did all the time, too. When he uh, sent Epaphroditus to Philippi, he sent a letter along with him, uh, a letter of introduction. That's the letter we know of as the book of Philippians. Uh, but uh, So this was a common tradition that when you send somebody, you send a message. And so uh, uh, the governor, or excuse me, the commander sends this letter, and in this letter, we see, again, an example of typical Greek letters. Remember, we talked about that at the beginning of the book of Philippians, that Greek letters always started with the same three entries, who it's from, who it's to, and then a word of greetings. And there we find in 26, just that. <clears throat> Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency Governor Felix, greetings. Okay, typical Greek letter. And um, he explains the situation. <laughs> he leaves out a few of the details that are not quite so favorable to himself. But uh, anyways, he gets the word across. <clears throat> and then verse 31. So the soldiers carried out their orders and took Paul with them during the night and brought him halfway there to Antipatris. The next day, they let the cavalry go on with him. So he continues to get to go on horseback. The rest of the troops went back to protect Jerusalem from those ornery Jewish uh, rebels. And then when the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he's um, So he just interrogates him briefly. And he decides that, yes, he is going to hear the case. Um, and then he orders that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Okay, so we've got a new character now, Governor Felix. And uh, we're going to learn all about him in the next episode. Interesting character. Uh, but uh, one of the things that I wanted to just point out before we left is that um, he orders Paul to be kept under guard in a place, uh, it's translated in my Bible as Herod's palace, uh, literal, the uh, Greek word is praetorium. And that is actually interesting because in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole praetorium and everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. 
So uh, we will be talking about this more in a future episode, uh, the question of where was Paul when he wrote the book of Philippians? So some people believe, based on uh, this verse and some other clues, that he may have actually written the book of Philippians from this specific uh, praetorium in Caesarea. Uh, We're going to find out in the next chapter that he has plenty of time to do that because he's going to stay here for two years. Uh, and so this is a stopover that um, uh, we'll give him the time to do that. Uh, so we'll we'll look at that um, in, in episodes to come. But in the meantime, I just want to encourage you, my brothers and sisters, this God that we serve has a plan for you. He's got it all planned out you may, he's not going to give you all the details in advance. He doesn't like to spoil his surprises, but he's got some great plans for you. And uh, he, he's going he's gonna to let you fret a little bit. He's going to put you in some prison cells or some situations, and there's going to be setbacks and there's going to be disruptions and there's going to be times, opportunities for you to wonder if God is paying attention. But I want you to know that he is. Just this last week, uh, I've gone through some significant situations in my life. Uh, some of the most stressful conversations uh, of the year um, happened in the last week. They're they're painful. They're um, difficult, and they um, took all the faith that I could muster to trust God to help me through these situations. And you know what? He did. He helped me through. In fact, I've learned more about trusting God just in the last week. I don't have time to talk talk about all the details, but I've learned so much about just putting my faith in, in Him. And I've learned this prayer that through this last week, I've prayed this prayer maybe a dozen times a day where I've just said, Lord, I don't know how you're going to solve this one, but I'm going to trust you. You know, there's two kind of faith. There's the faith where you just you just trust God because you believe. You're just confident. You know He's gonna He's gonna do it for you. And then there's the faith that says, Lord, I don't know if you're gonna do anything. I don't I don't know if I believe you, but I'm going to choose to put my trust in you. I'm gonna choose to walk forward, to place my uh, the, my one foot in front of the other, point them uphill, and keep on running because you have proven yourself trustworthy in the past, and I'm gonna trust you again. The same God who never fails. The same God who didn't fail. Paul is going to, he's not going to fail me now. He's going to carry me too. And so I put my trust in Jesus and I saw him come through for me so many amazing ways this week. And then just last night, there was a setback in one of the things that I'd seen this miracle happen. And then there was a this significant setback. And all of a sudden, you know what thought came to my mind? It was Oh, yeah, see, God God was just setting you up all this time. He wasn't really with you. He was just setting you up to play this big joke on you. He's, he's, he's not going to take care of you. That's actually literally the thought that went through my mind for just a moment. And then I immediately I said, are you crazy? This God who's just done so many amazing things for me this last week, you think I'm going to believe you, devil, when you— st- you hint that he is not keeping his eye on me, that he's not going to take care of me. That is the most stupid thing I've ever heard. Of course, I'm going to trust him, even this. And sure enough, God turned that setback into another win. And I just, you know, God doesn't always do it that condensed. He doesn't always come to your rescue on, on the timing that you want. But I want to guarantee you that he is working out everything for your good because he loves you and for the glory of his son Jesus he's going to expedite his plan in your life and i want to encourage you to hold on to him and to hold on to faith 
Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you promised Paul that you were going to take him to Rome, but you didn't, you didn't tell him how awesome the journey was going to be and how trying and stressful it was going to be all wrapped up together. You love to do that because it builds our faith and shows your glory. And we're just so grateful that you are so caring and so compassionate and so powerful and so reliable. And we want so much to follow you, Messiah, just like Paul did. Wherever you take us, wherever you've got for us, we're trusting you, Jesus. We have learned that you are trustworthy. And so we're going to follow you. I pray that for my friends that are listening right now. Give them that kind of faith that will just carry them through on horseback and sea vessel, that you would just carry them all the way. We love you, Lord God. Thank you. Amen. spend this time with me, but don't let it end here. May the words of God continue to resonate in your heart and transform your life until the day you meet our glorious King and Savior face to face.